Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with a four-time Major League All-Star and World Series champ, Troy Gloss. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. Today on the program, I'm joined by a four-time All-Star and a World Series champion. Led the American League in home runs in the year 2000 with part of the uh, Anaheim Angels. Ladies and gentlemen, Troy Gloss. Glosser, thanks for coming on the program. How much are you paying attention to what's going on right now in the game? Are you checking out these new rules? I have not really dove into them yet. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I know the bases are bigger. I don't know why, but the bases are bigger. Well, they're um, for, for guys like you. You need bigger bases. Well, us yeah. little guys, we're fine with the little bases. So now I'm just going to be out by slightly less. It, it's, right when I'm running, when I'm running down to first, like it's not going to make any difference for me. Well, I thought about it at first, and I and I thought, you know, that's an advantage for us, the hitter. We're going to get to the base quicker, but. It's okay. So the base is bigger on all four sides. Right. So that means the first baseman is two inches closer to the shortstop. So there's no advantage. The only advantage I see is stealing second base because you are there slightly quicker going first, going first to third by a, you know, a millisecond. You're going to have a slight advantage. And that might make the difference in two or three plays a year with you as a runner. But I'm with you on the bases. It's, it, you know, when I first saw him, it looks like a Pee Wee Herman episode. You know, I used to have all the big, you know, the big appliances like you'd eat with a big spoon. It's, it's, I yeah. Don't know. I mean, of all the things you could have changed, I don't think that one was necessary. How about the pitch clock? Would you have had a problem um, with that as a hitter? I don't think so. Um, but, you know, there were obviously when we played, there wasn't any really, you know, there, there were obviously there were guys you knew were slow and your guys you knew were fast. Right. And you just kind of adjusted to whoever was in there, whoever was pitching, um, you know, any, anything to kind of really, I think more of it, in, in terms of and less, less about the actual length of game, but more to the feel of the pace of the game. Right. Like I, I know I have, and I'm probably pretty sure you have too, probably, you know, you've played, three hour and 10 minute games that felt pretty quick. And you've played two hour and 55 minute games that felt like they took forever. Right. It just, it, it was more the, the, the pace of play and the, and the, the time spent in between actions, I guess. Yeah. I I've always compared it to a movie. You go to a good, you go to a great movie and it's three hours plus you'll come out of there going, that's a great movie. You're not going to be talking about the time you, you, you go to a, you go to a shitty movie and it's three hours plus, you're probably going to walk out before it ends and you're going to complain about it was too long. It was this. I'm with you. Same in the baseball game. I mean, I don't know why, you know, I think a big, uh, uh, a big reason for the time in today's game, you know, the postseason is because of the advertisements and, and there's more time in between innings. But for, the, but for the everyday game, what it is, is the bullpen has become such an intricate part, such an important part uh, of each organization, more so than when we were playing even. I mean, the bullpen is a oh. big thing. There's a lot of money put into a bullpen. Therefore, 
they're used a lot more. There's a lot more pitching changes. That's the reason for yeah. it. The strikeouts are up, yes. But I think, I don't know. I just, I, I'm sitting there. I, I'm like you. I didn't take, I wasn't the quickest guy getting in out of the box, but I also wasn't one of those guys that just moseyed around in circles. But that was me. For, for the pitchers sure. that work quick, this is this is going to be great for them because now everybody else has to form to their uh, to how they pitch. What I what I if I'm looking for to level the playing field and, and be fair, I look to a guy like like a Scherzer, like a Verlander, mm-hmm. like a Clayton Kershaw, guys that are that are near 40 years old, have been in this game for 18, 19 years, have done it. And, and I'm not saying those particular three work slow or work fast. I'm just, I'm just talking about longevity in the game and tenure to all of a sudden play this game one way at the big league level for 19 years and then be told, by the way, you got to get on the mound and deliver a pitch within a certain amount. I mean, that might not be Clayton Kershaw's way. He might've been deliberate his whole life. He's going to the hall of fame. And all of a sudden you change, you know, you change Nomar Garcia par and say, Hey, you can't do that little flip with your, with your batting gloves anymore. That's, that's out the window. Well, that might change no, no Mar Garcia par and what kind of hitter he is, you know, from we, we all are creatures of habit. We all have our things. Troy Gloss had his thing. Brett Boone has his thing. Sometimes they're weird, crazy. Other people wouldn't even understand it, but we have checkpoints. We have things we do before we go to the plate, things we do in the box that works for us individually. And all of a sudden, after hundreds of years of we're the only sport that doesn't have a timer. All of a sudden, there's a timer tomorrow. I, I don't know. I just think there's no grandfather clause. I, I thought there'd be one That's of what those. I was getting at, right? Like, yeah, go ahead. No, like if, if you know, okay, if you if you started the if you were a major leaguer post, I don't know, call it 2008, right? Then you don't have to do this, or or, or pre 2008, you don't have to do this, right? Like I, I, you would hate to have it affect someone who's got 18 years in, right? Um, now, I don't remember any of them being overly fast or slow, but right, right. The, the, the example um, was not because of their right. how they pitch; um, it's just their age and how long they've been at the game. I would have a very hard time wrapping my head around as a major leaguer all of a sudden trying to do trying to execute my craft and my job and be uncomfortable with it. Like you know, I've I had the same routine I'm my probably my whole life without even thinking about it. Like I, I would find that difficult to change, not impossible, but difficult to change. But I would have a hard time. Like as a hitter, if I was kind of a slower guy, I'm like, yeah, but this is my job. This is what I'm trying to do as for a living. Why right. do you get to dictate now that I have to change it? Mm-hmm. It is. Um, it's it's crazy. I saw a game the other day, and I know we'll talk about it uh, a little bit later in the program. I know you're going down uh, with the Angels as a special assistant coming up here soon, and you're going to probably be more in tune. You're going to be getting to watch some games and see how it actually plays out in real time. But there was a game the other day that ended with a called strike three with the bases loaded in like the bottom of the ninth because he didn't get back in the box quick enough. Now, Spring training, Manny Machado got a, a strike called on him uh, the first day that they used the clock. And, you know, he had some silly answer to the press, which is fine. It's spring training. It's Manny Machado. It doesn't matter. Uh, and at bat spring training, whether he made, got a hit or made an out, it's not a big deal. No. Fast forward a month from now, 
when that starts counting and you get an AB taken away from you in a big position or a pitcher uh, walks in the winning run because he didn't get to the rubber quicker. I don't know. I, I, I just think tones are going to change a little bit and it's not going to be as cute. Now you're messing with our livelihood. It, and, uh, you know, I don't know. You're, you're, you're going to figure it out probably quicker than I am because you're going to be on the ground in spring training. But I, I'm interested to know the intricacies of the rules. Like Ken Troy Gloss is a third baseman or Brett Boone at second base at any time, just like we always have. We can look to a pitcher and know when he needs a breather. You know, he may, he may need a visit from you just to loosen things up. Talk about golf, whatever. You just whatever. Know, right. My pitcher's laboring right now. I'm going to give him a breather right now. He's in a jam. I want to calm him down. We'll talk about something else. Can we do that with the pitch clock? I have no idea. I haven't read into the rules. Uh, yeah, I should have read it before we talked about it, but I didn't. I haven't dove into those any specifics either. Um, you know, obviously, the, you know, the pitch clock's getting all the getting all the publicity right now. Um but does it kind of fall, you know, once games start, are, are they, is it going to be kind of enforced? You know, do you have to really show some gross negligence, you know, and, and have it be at 25 seconds before they really start calling you on it? Um, Who's working you know, the pitch I, I, clock? Right. Does he, like, does he hit it at the exact right time? You know? Exactly. Like, you know, I always laugh when I'm watching the, like football, right. And they've, they've got the little play clock down in the corner. Right. How many times is the snap after zero? Right. right. And the delay of game doesn't get called. They're like, oh, well, they get a beat after zero. Can you well, challenge the can you challenge the pitch pitch clock and right. when it was yeah. when it was started? Yeah, no, first yeah, I didn't like that pitch. Right. I thought I thought it was a ball and I knew that it was really close. Can we go back and check and see if it was actually at zero? Right. Like I I don't know what's gonna be allowed on that. Are we just taking the umpire's word for it? Or yeah. whoever's whoever's I don't whoever's in charge of enforcing it, I would assume would be the home plate umpire. Yeah, I think these are the kinks that that are going to be worked out. But the people, you know, the people that do say I want a swifter moving game. Now, a guy like a Giancarlo Stanton, you know, he usually keeps his toe hole with the back. If if he doesn't swing yeah. at the pitch, he stays in the box. Well, that's him, and, and yeah, that's this fine. isn't this isn't going to bother him one bit. But. uh to a lot of other, it's. I think it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how this really plays out, especially when you know who's that first umpire. Umpire calling it right now in spring training. He's working on it too. This is all new for them as sure. well. But in the regular season, like I said, when it counts, when the, when that stat goes on the back of your bubblegum card, the stakes are a little bit higher, and that calling that strike or that ball isn't as cute uh, of a, of an occurrence as it is in in a cactus league game. No doubt. No doubt. Right. And I mean, are they all going to enforce it exactly the same? Right. You know, are, are like remember back in the day, right. You had, you had the pitchers umpires and the hitters umpires. Right. And you knew that going in, you know, are you going to have the guy that, that will give you a little wiggle room on the other end or not? You know, do you have to be standing there two seconds before you're supposed to, I, I don't know, you know, like, you know, cause that's the thing with having umpires, right. It's all subjective. It's, it's their idea of what they see. That's how they, that's how they do their job, and I, in my opinion, I would rather have my home plate umpire locked in on whatever pitch is coming, not looking at a clock in the outfield. But you know, I mean, I, I do I do think you know the the pace of the game could could certainly stand to speed up, but you know at what cost, right? And we'll have to see what that we'll have to see what that causes, right? We'll have to see, and and spring training will show it somewhat, but like to your point, you know, until. 
until these record until these these at bats start going down and you can't take them away, that's when it'll start getting real interesting. You know, somebody can get thrown out for it. Yeah. You know, argue probably, probably a pitcher or a hitter or both will get thrown out because they argued the pitch clock. The one you know, thing is, is that a, is that an ejectable offense now? I right, don't know. Right. You you started it late. Yeah, you're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I had I mean, a, you know. I had a buddy went to the game the other day, and he gave me some feedback. He said, "Brett, it was really interesting. I really watched the pitch clock the entire time. Like I was glued to it." And he said, "And the thing I noticed is that it was a swifter pace to the game." And I said, "Obviously." He goes, "No. What I mean was, hitters were." He said, what I noticed about the hitters is they were aware that now I'm on a faster pace and it's almost like they were in swing mode. So he, he said, I don't know if I'm just, you know, I'm just exaggerating it because I was so focused on the pitch clock. He said, it seems like a lot more balls were put in play. Guys were ready to hit. He said, <clears throat> excuse me, on the pitcher side. He said, I saw guys that were laboring a little bit, were in trouble and were almost like. I don't know what to do. I need to take a little breather. I need to walk around the mound. I need to grab the rosin back. And because of the pitch clock, couldn't do it. So he said, I saw the tail of, of two different ends of the spectrum. Hitters, wow. cognitive, you know, very aware that I've got to be in the box and on time. Where he said the pitchers were like, all right, how do I get on time when I need a break? So interesting take coming from him. Absolutely. That, and I never really thought of from the perspective of how, what would a pitcher do if he's in trouble? Right. It's you're in Baltimore and it's August 7th and the heat index is 111. Right. Like, am I just supposed to throw 35 pitches as fast as I can? Or do I get to actually take a breath? You know, do I get to walk around the mountain, get the rosin back, wipe my wipe my sweat off my my head? You know, like how much when does the when does the clock start? Like, does it start when you're engaged with the rubber? These are things I don't know. Right. How about that when I get there? How about if me? How about if you're in the box? You got a problem with the strike. Hey, Joe, ball's down. Troy, now I thought it had the corner. I'm telling you, the ball's down. Now, does the argument go with the pitch clock? So, what if you're having words or you're discussing something? You're asking him a question. He's responding. Same with that catcher back and forth with the umpire. If they have a discussion, are they still on the pitch clock? Uh, you right. know, you know what I'm saying. I mean, it, are we going to get to a point where? Uh, the manager's got to come out. He sees his pitchers laboring and the manager will come on the field to argue something, uh, you know, something that not, that has nothing to do with what's going on just to give him a break. So now you're going to have that going on and they're going to have to change the rules to cover that. I don't know. I think it's a mess. That's why I think you don't have, I don't think you have a pitch clock. However, a lot of guys and and buddies of my baseball guys say they think it's good for the game. We're going to see. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one more about the rule changes and then we'll get on to, to more exciting things. But you finished in 2010 uh, for the most of your, your career, it, the shifts weren't a prominent thing. I don't know if in 10, they were starting to come in. Uh, I see the shifts, you know, we used to shift radically for like a Barry Bonds. Okay. That was it. And we, and we would do the same thing for like Giambi or somebody like that. Right. right? But I'm not going to put Troy Gloss in, in short right center field. Like they're no. putting Machado just like, you know, now with the double play rules are different. We can't take the guy out at second. So anybody can turn a double play. We can have a, yeah. we can have a, reliever turning a double play now that's that's a that's a little bone i have to pick as a second i I can i don't i don't doubt that one bit but the shift to me 
and I've racked my brain about it. I, I don't agree with uh, them taking the shift away. I think you should be able to defense however you want. Uh, and if that means a radical uh, defensive alignment, I'm fine with that. I, I think it's wrong to take the shift away and say you can't shift. Now, what are they going to do? They're going to go right on the edge of that. You can't be on the right of side of second base or left. So they're going to they're going to push. But I think the problem and I don't want to say a problem. I think today's players and, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on it. I've been trying to figure out why do these shifts work? Well, I think today, almost like a, how a golfer trains in 2023, everything is very regimented. It's very robotic. I think the swings of today, for the most part, I'm still saying great hitters are great hitters always will be. But I think the swing angles, launch angles, exit velocity, uh, you, you see a lot more mechanical swings being taught and, and, and practice through the lower ranks, through the minor leagues. I think these swings for the average player are becoming really, the only thing I can come up with is they're becoming really predictable. And that's why a shift works. If you take this robotic swing and go here, 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 the, the likely outcome is this. I think you you take a, you know, and I hate to always go back to our generation, but you take a Tony Gwynn. You try to shift on a Tony Gwynn, he's going to laugh at you. You know, it, today, a, a Freddie Freeman, you can't shift on a Freddie Freeman. He, he's still going to get, he's still going to find holes in that, in that defense. Uh, four against the shift and, and I don't know. What do you, what do you think of it in general? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of waver back and forth a little bit, but, you know, as a right-hander, obviously they can't shift as as severely as you can against a left-hander. Um, you know, you're not going to put you're not going to put your second baseman in short left field, right? You won't be able to throw anybody out, right? So that only works really against the lefties. Um, you know, what? I, for me, like, you know, as you know, you've seen spray charts your whole life, and so have I, right? And and you know, most balls the other way are in the air. Most balls on the pull side are on the ground. And that's just how, and maybe that's not the case anymore, but certainly when we played, that was kind of the trend, right? It was, it's much easier to hit a ball in the air the other way than it is on the pull side and vice versa. Um, like I always found it really, really difficult to hit like a real hard ground ball to right field. I can hit a line drive over there, but hitting a hard ground ball was, was difficult for me to do, especially when the pitcher was pitching me accordingly and not giving me a pitch to do that with, you know? Um, but I think, you know, I'm with you though. I, like, if if you want to put the center fielder in front of put who put the catcher out there, whoever, I don't care, right? Put somebody out there in right field if you want to, right? You're opening up huge holes. Then it's on the it's the onus is on the hitter to then make the adjustment. Without a doubt, and and you you go round and round. You have guys that the shift is killing this and killing that. Um, I you know what I bring it back to, and I always, I still laugh to this day if Troy Gloss. I think I don't know if we were in Anaheim or we were in Seattle when I turned to you and, and told you, oh, right, I squared around like I was going to bunt. And you looked at me and go, go ahead. I'm not coming in, Booney. I'm not going to no. come in and take away the bunt from you. And not gonna I, do it. I always laugh at that because and I still I tell that story. I said, Gloss wouldn't come in for my bunt. And I, I threatened to bunt on him. I threatened. Bunt. I don't know if I ever did end up bunting on you, but you said, go ahead and do it again. And I will not. You're not going to bring me on the dirt in this particular situation. No I, always <laughs> I always laughed about that. <clears throat> um, I don't know. I, I just the uh, 
I think with I mean, these shifts, me, like with these shifts, people, you're good with the shift. I, I just think that scenario where, yeah, I, I'm probably not going to bun on you. But if you throw that unbelievable shift on me, I'm going to drop a bunt down. If I'm Larry Walker and you've got that dead pull shift going and and mm-hmm. Troy Gloss is in right field, I'm going to bunt all day long. I'm going to take my base hit to to lead off an inning until you stop shifting on me. And I just right. didn't see the guys doing it. You know, it's the like, side well, of that, I think the side of that, I think, is is Larry also had a chance to, to steal second. Right. Um, like we put we put big shifts on Giambi, uh, Big Poppy, Barry, you know, later in his career. Because um, they weren't going to go steal second. Like you, you, you want to get on first? Go ahead. Go ahead. Because you're, you, you're going to hit 58 doubles this year and 40 homers. Go ahead and lay one now. I don't care. You know, because now, now you're on first base and it's going to take two hits to score you. Right. And we use extreme, you know, we use extreme uh, measures for, I mean, those players you're talking about, Giambi, Barry, Walker, they're, they're MVP type guys. Nowadays sure. with the shift, they're shifting on a regular old left-handed hitter in the eight hole in a lineup. Well, Who, that's because they plugged, you know, they plugged the numbers into the computer or something. And this is what it spit out. You right. Need, and I'm saying standing for, right here. Right. And I'm saying for those guys, just that average player. Why not bunt in those situations every single time and get good at it and get good at it? I understand Bond's not bunting. You throw him a strike, there's a 50-50 chance he's ricocheting once off something off the facade, you know. But exactly. Anyway. No, I mean for sure. Like if you if you're a you know, a six, seven, eight hole guy and they're shifting on you, lay it down. Right. At the very least, what it'll accomplish, it'll get the third baseman or whomever is playing shortstop to come in and stand on the grass. Well, now your holes just got even bigger over there. Right. I've always said that. I, I, it blows me away that these guys, you know, I'll see a guy up there hitting 226 with uh, 11 homers. They've got the whole, the, the entire infield and outfield on the right side, and he's just not going to bunt <laughs> because it's so such a good chance that he's going to hit a homer. It, bo- it, it boggles my mind. Gosh, All right. It really does. We'll get off that topic. I guess, you know, I, I, I thought it was interesting. I wanted to get your take, you know, a player yeah. from, from my generation's take with everything going on right now in spring training. But and uh, I'll be curious to see when I get out there, what it, what it looks like. Like, I don't, I don't know the specific rules on, the, on like the shift and stuff, but I want to see it in real life. And you'll right? get a chance. Like you re- right. And you'll get a chance to sit there with the, with the current player. What do you think? You know, you're going to be yeah. with the trout and Otan. What do you think of this? You know, and yeah. see, see what their feedback is. We talked about you going out as a special instructor. Uh, my dad just came back from doing it. And, you know, he's, uh, I don't know if I want to do it. And he ended up doing it. And you know how when a guy's really enjoying himself and, and he's yeah. back in that angel uni that he hasn't been in a long time, but he wants to be kind of proud. Like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. I could tell dad had a really good time. Um, Phil Nevin, buddy of mine growing up, and, and mm-hmm. he's close with my dad, invited him out there. And I asked Phil, you know, what's your plan? You're going to go out there in, in a week or so, and I think it's a really cool thing, and, and I don't think there's enough of it done in the game today. I think when you go watch the Yankees, they do it. The The Phillies are, do a really good job of bringing the ex-players back, and I just think it's it's baseball, and it's so cool for, for a grandfather, a son, and a grandson to go to a game and have three different generations they can watch. You know, I, I remember Yankee Stadium when Yogi Bear used to be there. 
you know, and this is the Jeter era. So you got Yogi mm-hmm. Berra, you got Reggie Jackson, and then Derek is was the, the current captain of, of the Yankees at that time. I just thought, mm-hmm. you know, with a grandpa, a dad, and a son in the stands, the grandpa could be sitting there going, son, you should have seen when Yogi was playing. I used to watch you play. And the, and the son can tell his son Reggie Jackson stories and his son's into the Derek Jeter of the time. You know, now would be Aaron oh. Judge. I think that's so cool. And I think Phil – uh, when they named him manager, I think history is important to him and he's trying to establish that, uh, bringing you, I, I think it's a really cool thing. I think it's great for the game. Your thoughts going into it. No, I thought I, you know, he, he invited me. He, we were, I don't know if we were playing golf or something and he's like, you're coming to camp. I'm like, I don't know. I'm good. Whatever. He goes, no, no, you're coming. I said, yeah. And you know, Phil, right. Like he's, he's pretty straightforward, you know? And he's like, no, you're coming. I was like, Okay, I'll come. You know, that simple. And he's like, and you know you're going to come and work. I'm like, well, I don't want to stand around all day. Like, you know, he goes, no, no, no. We're going to put your butt to work, and you're going to be out there with the guys. I'm like, sounds great. I'll be out there. Just let me know when I need to go. And that's really how easy it was. And, and you know, I listen, I'd, I'd love to be on a baseball field as much as anybody, you know. Um, but And to be around the, you know, easily a handful of the best players in the game right now. Excuse me, and just and, and more. I, I like to watch the kids who are coming up, right? Like I, I, I now that I'm coaching my son, like I enjoy practice more than the games. Like I enjoy watching them put time in, you know, taking their ground balls. I like I'd I'd like to go out there. Well, I mean, at least in Angel Stadium, they do on the on the stadium. But you know, go when when, when we played, at least we always go down to like Field Two or something and take ground balls. Like go down there and watch them actually do their work and see if I can learn something again. Right. You know that I can bring back, you know, watch Anthony Rendon play third, right? Like we're two different players, but maybe he does something and, and thinks about something. He's taking a ground ball that I never did, you know, and then I can take it, bring it back to the, bring, bring it back to our, our group out here. You know, it's just, it, it, it's, it's a game you can, you never stop learning, you know, it, it's, and it's fun to be around the young guys who are really, really enjoying playing and having a blast doing it and are very, very good at it. And, you know, you're, you're obviously going to sit there and compare, right? Compare who's, who was better, this, that, and the other, but, you know, figure out maybe they're doing something different. Maybe that's why they're better. You know, maybe, you know, maybe it's not just as simple as, Hey, they're bigger and stronger. You know, maybe, maybe there's something different than that. Bigger, stronger, faster. Um, I'm just curious to see it up close. Like I've, it's been what, 12 years since I've been in a major league clubhouse. Um, I'm curious to see how they go about their business now. And how 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 it is different from when we when we were going through our business and getting ready to go play spring training game. You know, I, I from all accounts, it seems to be like they're they're taking it maybe even a little bit more serious. Um, they're certainly taking care of themselves better, and you know, I want to see what what that looks like. You know, so I can pass on some information to the kids here and and say, this is listen, this is what I saw. This is what the best players are doing. Because um, until I see it, I don't know it. Right. And I can't pass on that information. And, that, and that's, you know, that's how we all have learned how to play, you know, from when we were rookies to minor or minor leaguers to rookies. Right. We had older guys teaching us how to play. Right. And telling us what teaches us how, how to be pros. And I think that's super important. You know, if, if you can gain that knowledge and then pass it along. Yeah, and I think it's really cool. I mean, you bring up a good point. Uh, just going back, we, we are baseball players, and this is what we did for a lot of years. And, and when we first retired, you know, I remember when I first retired, I didn't want to go back. I didn't want anything to do with the stadium. You know, I'm, I'm 17 years removed now. 
Uh, and when I go back to Seattle and, and put on a jersey and throw out a first pitch, um, I have to admit, it's kind of cool seeing how the town, they remembers you, they remember you and, and they appreciate you. And, and not that we need that, you know, I don't need people to, but, but I appreciate them for, for, you know, Hey, remember those years and this, it's a cool thing. I mean, we, you take it for granted when you're playing this game, being a big league player, cause we're in the grind and, and our mind isn't in the, in the, uh, in the position of, Oh, let's, let's just stop and enjoy and, and really appreciate having this uniform on. No, we're worried about who we're facing tonight. You know, I got to yeah. face, I got to, I'm facing Maddox tonight and I got Smoltz tomorrow and I don't care about this uniform. Actually, I'd like to not play because my swing stinks. But when yeah. you, when you step away from the game long enough, I think mo- for, for most of us, we really do have an appreciation for how lucky we were to play this game at, at the level we did and make a living at it. So I enjoy it now. The farther I get away from the game, being around the guys, uh, not necessarily I got to do it every day, but but I think it's fun to once in a while throw on the uniform and, and just see interact with this with this generation and and have discussions. Like you said, talk about the new theories, thought process. Hey, I might not agree with that, but you might have something for me that, hey, I really agree with. I think we're constantly learning. I think this current generation has got a lot to give and we probably as X players can learn from them. But they can also learn from us. And, and I think that's the great thing about baseball. You can always learn from the generation in front of you and the generation behind you. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, there's, you know, the the, the analytics and, you know, launch angle and exit velo stuff like that's beyond me. I don't really understand it. I don't I mean, I, I get I get that if you hit it on a pretty good trajectory really hard, it goes very far. Like I get that. <laughs> right. The same, same thing applied when we played. Right. You know, yeah, but, I know, but now, I know so, that's good. I know that's good yeah. right there. How was that exit velo? How was that exit velo? Did you see where it landed? That's good. That's good. Right. Like <laughs> the best we had was, I don't know when he hits it, it makes a different sound. Right. You know, like we knew that guy hit it hard because it whizzed by me and I only got a step. I only got a step worth of range before it was in left field. Yeah. That was hit really hard. Yeah. You know, but now they can quantify it. And I, I, I think that's good that they can quantify it. Um, I think it's also a, uh, it can hinder or hurt um, some of the young guys coming up because they can quantify it and they may, and then these kids try to try to like build a swing that produces this exit velo launch angle number that looks really good on the computer screen, but maybe doesn't play in real life. And that's what frustrates me is if you can already hit a ball 450 feet, then sure, sure as hell, dude, launch it at any angle you want. You know, it'll be fine. You obviously hit it hard enough and you are capable of hitting a ball in the air. So, yeah, that'll be good. What frustrates me is when I, you see see someone who is maybe a, you know, uh, uh, you know, seven to eight to nine homer guy trying trying to trying to use a swing that that because he wants to hit 25. Like that, that's to me, to me, whoever taught him that is doing him a disservice because that's not the player he truly is. And that frustrates the heck out of me. Yep. I had Trevor Bauer on the, uh, on the podcast, really interesting guy, smart, really smart. Well, he's a Bruin dude, you know, Uh, he's a Bruin. Yeah, I get it. But that's another bone I got to pick with you, but um, (laughs) really smart made some, he made me think quite a bit during the interview. And he did at one point say, 
too much information in the wrong hands is a detriment. He said the guys that can take this data, take the technology, take the take what everything we have at our fingertips today, 2023, and use it in the right way can really benefit from it. He goes, but if you give too much information to the wrong guys, the wrong guys with the wrong mental state uh, when when bringing in all this information, he said it can ruin careers. And I thought that was a great point in the right hands with the right guy, with the right mentality. The X's and O's really can work. But you give it to a, a guy that's maybe a little more fragile, you know, upstairs between the years. Uh, too much information. You know, that exit below is is 89 and it was supposed to be 94. That could ruin his week you know, wow. where some guys don't really care. They, ha- they have that way about them. So I thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, and I, I see it. I see it in with the kids. Right. Like, I, you know, they go to these in, instructors, they go to these batting coaches and stuff because they can all pull it up on the Web and then they they find themselves or, or fancy themselves an expert in all this stuff. And you got a kid who's five foot two and 93 pounds and he's swinging straight up in the air. <laughs> he's that's like, well, that's going to pay off. <laughs> I'm like, dude, if, the, if your best bolts 220, I would suggest you not hit the ball in the air. Or stay in little league for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. As long as the, as long as the fence is two hundred, Glosser, you're yeah, fine. Exactly. Well, you know, they're thirteen now. Your fence is a two hundred. Yeah, that's right. right? Thirteen, so, you're done. You're done. Yeah. You're, you're, so you know, stretching like, out. I, that that frustrates me when these guys are these, these these parents and kids are spending money. Well, not the kids, but the parents are spending money to take their kid to someone who is deemed a hitting guy because he figured out what all this stuff means and takes a kid who did some things pretty well and tried to fit him into his mold, into this guy's mold. And all of a sudden the swings shit, you know, and yeah, he's, he's launching balls. Great. And he's hitting them as hard as he can, but they're only going two thirty. Yeah. So there's a problem there. Right. And, and I, and, and that's where I think, uh, you know, there's some of the kids, some of the, uh, the I agree wholeheartedly with Trevor and saying that, 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 you know, if you can really understand it and you have a, a guy who is really capable of maximizing those numbers, then I think it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to know what it is. I don't think you need to know that, Hey, it's 94, not 98 or 89, not 94. But if you're trying to gauge how you are progressing and a month ago it was your average 89 and now you're averaging 92, well, then that's better. Right. You know, and I feel like I feel like a lot of these guys are teaching to the machine instead of using the machine to teach. Does that make sense? Like it, it does. And I'll still tell the young player today. Nothing replaces having a good at bat, getting a good piece uh, pitch to hit and knocking the shit out of it. Nothing replaces that. And I don't care where it went. I don't care what the exit velocity was. I don't care what the angle it was at. Getting a good pitch out over the plate and knocking the shit out of it is always going to play at any level. It's always going to pay a lot of money. It's always going to get you in the lineup the next day. If you can get in the box and consistently have good at bats, control the strike zone. And when the ball's in the strike zone, have a quality swing. That's going to put you in the lineup tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and the next day. And I try to tell that to kids. It's not about this and that, and I don't care how hard you hit it. Of course, guys that hit the ball 
hard consistently, the stats say you have a better chance of more success without a right. doubt. But we know no. that we don't need a monitor. Like you said, yeah. we know when it's good. I know when I hit a bullet and they caught it. It's a over one in the box score. But I know that was a good swing. I don't need to go back in the dugout and go, hey, was that a good swing? You know, I yeah. used to you, you ever have that guy that comes, you know, he comes up or a teammate of yours that comes to you. Hey, Troy, did that look good? You know, he just hit a home. Run. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, that looked horrible. Any first of all, anytime you hit a homer in the big leagues, you cannot it cannot be a bad swing. It's a good swing. Oh, I don't care if you fell down, slipped, fall, broke your ankle. If it went out, it was a good swing. Without a doubt. Uh, speaking of UCLA, you uh, you get drafted out of high school. I did. And I, and I, I did think you're a second round pick. Second rounder. Yep. Before, the, you know, you were getting you were right at that point where the money was starting to get a little bit big, but nothing like today's game. No, you end up no, going no, to U- yeah. you end up going to UCLA uh, yep. 97 first round pick. I think you were the third overall by the Angels. You only take a year to get to the big leagues. Yep. Uh, 98, your call up year. 99, uh, you're in there every day. You hit 29 homers and then 2000. You're an all-star silver slugger. You're the home run champ that year. You hit 47. Mm -hmm. Who were the guys that when you came to the big leagues, took you under their wing? And and how was that process going from college baseball, high pick, only a year in the minor leagues, and now you're in the big leagues? How was that process for you? Yeah, so I think really once I got got drafted and I got – they sent me to instructional league for – I don't know, I was there like three or four weeks or something. And then they sent me to Venezuela to play winter ball. So my first professional at-bats were down there. Um, never played a game with a wood bat ever, right? So they sent me there. And I struggled, as I, you know, as everybody said I should have. Um, but I got to face guys that were in the big leagues, right? They, there was, like, Felipe Lira was on our team. Um, I faced Freddie, uh, Freddie Garcia, but Freddie was a minor leaguer at that point. Um, you know, there were seven or eight major leaguers that were pitching, getting ready for camp. Um, so I got to see them and I got kind of got to see what, what the, the elite was different from, although at UCLA, obviously we saw great pitching all the time, but what I got to see the difference, right? Like it wasn't necessarily that, that, okay, this guy throws harder than anybody else I faced, right? There were guys at Stanford that threw 95, right? So that wasn't like a big jump, but you know, I remember facing Freddie Garcia in my, in, uh, in, uh, in Venezuela, and he was like, you know, kind of crossfire, high three quarter. All of a sudden, his ball's sinking, and it's ninety seven. And I was like, well, that's different. I've never seen that, you know. So I think, had I not gone and played in winter ball, as rough as it was to be down there for two two months and change, had I not done that, I would not have gotten called up that next year, because then I went to big league camp and then went to double A for two months and triple A for two months. And then I was up, but nothing I saw in my four months in the minor leagues was any better than what I saw when I was in winter ball. So like there wasn't, it wasn't a shock. Um, it not, nothing stood out as like, okay, well, you know, you know, I saw Freddie doing this, but this guy, you know, he throws three miles an hour hard. No, right. Like that. I saw, I saw better pitching, not better, but I saw some better pitching in Venezuela than I did in the minor leagues at all. And therefore, the minor leagues, it was much easier to make that transition um, in the minor leagues because it wasn't, I wasn't learning not only how to use a wood bat and play every day, 
I wasn't also learning, well, how do you catch up to 97? Right? Because I'd already done that. I'd already faced that. And, you know, when I got called up, it was, you know, the team was a very, very veteran team. You know, we had Gary DeSarcina and Chuck Finley and, uh, you know, there's Jeff Juden was there. Um, there was a handful of old, older guys. Um, but really, you know, it was, it was Garrett. Um, it was Jimmy Edmonds and it was Percy. Right. And they really, Troy Percival, and they really took me, you know, in tough love. Right. But, but took me under their wing and kind of explained to me and taught me how to be a pro. Right. And how to play every day and what to do to prepare to play for the next day or, you know, help me out with, obviously, because, you, you know, when you get to the big leagues, you're facing everybody for the first time. Um, you know, what to expect, things like that. You know, Percy and I used to talk all the time when I played with him is, is we would talk instead of, instead of like, I, he would talk to me about my hitting plan because off of a certain guy, because he was a pitcher, right? He's like, this is how I would get, try to get you out. And, you know, and pitcher A, who is starting tonight, well, he has a, his sliders better than mine. So he'll probably, he'll probably try to get you out this way. And we talked about that a lot. And that really helped, right? Because I, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, up until that point, you kind of just get by on talent, right? And on all of a sudden now, everybody's just as good. And then it's the little things that really kind of take you over to the next, that next step to, to playing every day, but then knowing you're going to play every day and, and not getting to a point where, Oh my God, I'm over eight. Now I'm going to sit. No. Right. Getting to that point where you, you can, you know, that you're even after an over eight, you're still going to play that third day. And that yeah. was huge for me. It, and it's such a, such a process. Not so much mm-hmm. anymore. You talked about tough love. Yeah. These guys were pulling for you. They wanted you to do good, but you also had to prove to them you belong to be a big ligger, but you're right. There are little things we go through. It's that I remember my first spring training, you know, I'd come in in the seventh inning and replace Harold Reynolds and maybe get squeaking a bat out mm-hmm. late in the game. And then I remember the first time that I started the game and guys would come and replace me in the fourth inning. And I'm like, all right, I've kind of arrived. Like you, yeah. like you said, you get to a point where you don't have to check the lineup where the skipper will come up to you and say, Hey, you're going to have a day off tomorrow. Now it's like, wow, I've arrived. But these are little things that sound silly and tedious, but to us as players, they're really important because it's like, man, I, I I've been working hard and I went through a lot to earn the skipper actually telling me I'm going to have a day off tomorrow. That's kind of like you've arrived. Oh, I remember that. Like, I mean, I remember the first time it was so did it. And I was like, you're actually like, nobody's ever told me I was going to get a day off before the night before. Right. Right. That's it a was, big, that's big for us. Especially when we're huge, young. Right. Yeah. Cause now that's like, okay, now he thinks enough of me, not only to actually give me a day off. Cause he's actually thinking I might be tired, which I probably was at that point, but you know, he respects me enough to tell me the night before, which is, which is for me was huge. Like that, that there, and, and I think for a lot of us were, was huge. Like not that the day off wouldn't have mattered just as much if I learned the next day, but the fact that he went out of his way to tell me the night before. Yeah, it, it, it is the little things that are, that are so big. Uh, like I said, 2000, you hit 47, 2001, you hit 41. You follow that up with 30 and 02 drove in over a hundred, all three years. 
I want to talk about this. Another Troy Gloss story that I tell to this day is 2001 home run derby. Troy Gloss. Oh, yeah. about that. Okay. But I know where this is going. Right. And I learned a huge lesson because I got some humble pie two years later in Chicago. I think I've told you that story, huh? but it's 2001. It's my first home run derby. I don't know if it was your first. Was it your first? It was my first. It was your first. So we're sitting there. We're in Seattle. Let me set the stage for the audience here. And Troy goes up and we're talking to each other like we always did. Cause you know, back then we, we played the angels and the, and the Mariners. It seemed like we were playing each other every other day. So all the time, all yeah, the time. we, you know, we kind of had some buddies on, on both teams. So me and Troy are just kind of shooting it and it's both, it's our first home run derby. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, it was my home field, that team, you know, that Mariner team, we were, that was our crazy year where we seemed like we won yeah, every that, single that team night. Was so good. And all I remember was I'm not, this is not my thing. I'm not a big hit bombs, every pitch and BP. I'm just going to try to do fine, save face and, and uh, get out of this home run derby. I ended up doing whatever I did. I think I hit three or four. I tied with Sammy Sosa. Uh, The tiebreaker was he has, uh, he had more home runs than me at the break. So he went on and he got, but I didn't care because I said I did fine. I hit, I think I hit a couple in the upper deck. I was fine. Mm -hmm. But I remember you, you hit none. I think you might've hit the camera that was right in front of us with a ground. Well, I'll tell you what though. What I did do is I let nobody, nobody in that home run derby had more doubles down the left field line than me. Unbelievable. You hit none. So Troy hits none. none. He comes back to me with this look on his face and I'm laughing and he said, Booney, I feel stupid. And as a player at the time, because I hadn't gone through it, I said, Troy, who cares? You're mm-hmm. here. You got invited to be in the home run derby, which means you're killing it, what it where it counts. As a player, I looked at you like that could have happened to me easy. No big deal. I was poo-pooing it to you. And you were yeah. like, no, Booney, I really feel like an idiot right now. And I couldn't. I couldn't wrap around it because us as players, we don't really care about that stuff. It's an exhibition. doesn't count. Some guys do great. Some guys don't, but it's no big deal. So I remember that I go to 2003, my second home run derby in Chicago. Same thing. Doubles down the left field line. I swung and missed a pitch. I hit no homers. And, you know, right after you go to go to the mic and they interview you, I was so humiliated. I didn't know what to say. And all the players, you know, none of the players could care less. They're watching you like whatever. But you feel like the whole world cares so much. I'm telling you right then I went right to Troy Gloss. I go, I was teasing him because he said he felt stupid. I said, I know exactly how he feels right now. And this is the worst feeling you could have about a a topic that doesn't matter. (laughs) Well, it's, it's amazing how much you could care about something that nobody cares about. Right. But yeah, like I, I was, I was embarrassed. I felt, I felt awful. Like I was like, this is, this is not that hard. What happened? <laughs> it's amazing. And I took it for granted. I'm like, Troy's being, he's being weird. Like, sit, let, why is he letting this bother him? Then all of a sudden it happens to me. I'm like, now I know why it's bothered him. This is the worst feeling I've ever had. I'm so embarrassed. I wanted to co crawl in a hole. It was weird. Oh. All right. Get to O2. And, um, what a year. And I remember oh, that, you know, us as, and I had Timmy Salmon on, and I want your take. 
on mm-hmm. it. Uh, he talked about his why he thinks you guys won. He said, you know, unlike the teams that that were in first place start to finish and finished with a, you know, clinched in the beginning of September and waited around and played some useless games down the stretch. Now all of a sudden it's playoff time. He said, those teams that were waiting around for us, we had been in playoff mode for a month down the stretch. It seemed like every game for us was a playoff mode just to get that wild card. And back then that was a tough division. I think we won 93 games that year. Yeah, we, so- we didn't even, we didn't even get a wild card. Because no. you guys, you guys caught us at the end. I remember that. I mm-hmm. remember we went into Anaheim and we needed to sweep you or something, and then like yeah. the opposite happened. And I remember, uh, I remember at the end of that series, sitting in the in the clubhouse, and our our general manager at the time, um, Pat Gillick. Mm-hmm. It was really somber because we knew we had to come to Anaheim and, and sweep you to have a chance at that wild card. And, and it went the other way and you kind of eliminated us right there. Anyway, you guys end up going to the, going to the playoffs as the wild card and you end up winning the world series. And Timmy said, I, I tribute a lot to, we were in playoff mode from September 1st. So when we got to the playoffs, those teams that were sitting around waiting, they had no idea what they were about to run into. We were we were a hardened veteran group. We'd been in the playoffs for a month. Yeah. This wasn't a playoff game to us. Uh, what do you think about that take? Well, I think he was – I think he's spot on. Um, and I would argue it was, it was almost playoff baseball from farther away than even September. Um, you know, we started that season, I think it was 6-14. and 14. Um, and we're coming out. I remember we, we left Seattle, right? And you guys whooped up on us again. And now we're six and 14, right? And we had a, we kind of had a come to Jesus meeting in the, in the clubhouse. And, uh, Mike called it, uh, Soch. And, you know, basically just telling, you know, he's saying all the right things, right? He's like, we still believe in you guys. We know the talent is here, blah, blah. You know, we had some guys that were injured at the beginning of the year, uh, uh, Spies was coming off a six game suspension. I had a two game suspension for a fight in spring training, you know, so there was, there was, uh, uh, you know, we, we weren't at full strength, but that, you know, obviously there's no excuses, right? Once the loss goes on the board, you can't take it off. Um, but then we kind of all just looked at each other and, and kind of agreed that, yeah, you know, we believe the talent is in here. Um, and then, you know, from there on out, you know, I think so. What we end up with ninety nine wins, so we won ninety three. What were we ninety three and I don't know fifty two or whatever the number is to get to right one hundred sixty two games. I don't know, but you know, it's just like right then and there we all started pulling the rope in the same direction. And yeah, I mean, you know, there you got to get some. You know, you know, he hits here, good outings here. Right, and and, and we were in that mode now from basically basically beginning of Mar- of May through the end where, you know, instead, instead of not making that play that helps you win, you make it right. Instead of, instead of somebody popping out with, with the bases loaded in the seventh inning, somebody hit a double, you know, it was just like, we were doing things uh, a our way, which was different than how a lot of teams were being played. Not so much you guys, but uh, Oakland, certainly the Yankees to some extent, where you know we were we were crappy right like we, we had we had some power and but not not a ton uh you know top to bottom um but what we had was we had a bunch of guys who were good athletes who could run 
who could steal bases, who could hit and run, who could execute, who could handle the bat, um, who played good defense, right? And we had starters that 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 hung in there and fought and clawed. And then obviously at the back end of the bull, our bullpen was was lights out for most of the season that year. Um, but we really just kind of we embraced who we were maybe more instead of trying to trying to do something that we that we were not. And it became a very selfless uh, locker room, you know, playing for the guy behind you and the guy in front of you, um, you know, big on moving runners, you know, and instead of going to the plate with first and first bases loaded, instead of driving all the guys in, you just try to drive the first one in because you know, the next guy is going to get the next guy. Right. And, and it was just that way. Like we, we, we just beat people into submission, right? Like it was, we were just singling pulling people to death and, and within that running the bases, you know, a bit like our hair was on fire and it was super fun to do. You right? guys run, you guys were unbelievable. And, and I still yeah. talk about that. I said that year, 2002, what separated the angels because we had the best division. It was us, you and, yeah. and the, and the A's at the time. Yep. And I would, we'd go in to play you guys and, and we'd be sitting in those meetings, you know, the hitters meetings and the pitchers meetings before the series. And I'd say, guys, these guys will run your, nose in the ground they go first to third they are going to take the chance to score they are the most aggressive team i've ever seen and i loved it for i didn't like it from our standpoint because i don't think other teams were prepared for it i remember just havoc everybody was doing it it was first to third and it, it just goes to show you you put enough pressure on outfielders uh they're not as accurate as you think they are because no. they're used to you not running on them. You start running in their face, it starts to put pressure. I remember I used to play, we'd play the infield in. And I knew that Sosha was going on contact. Now, of course, we always did. As a second baseman, when the infield's in, what does my mind tell me? Well, I'm Brett Boone. You hit a ball to me. You're not going to run on me. I knew you were going to run right in my face. That added a little bit of anxiety before the pitch was even made, I'm like, these guys are going to run right in my face. Almost, I know it wasn't a sign of disrespect. It was the way you guys played. But I took it as the nerve of you running when when I'm in on the grass. And I knew you were going to do it. That little extra pressure, and I think it got around the league. I think for sure uh, in 2002, that def definitely separated you from the rest of the pack. So, I mean, you know, offensively we're good, right? We, we, I think we led the, led the league in hitting that year in hits probably, um, you know, batting average, but you know, more, more than that is, is there wasn't anybody except maybe the twins, the twins did a really good job of it too. Um, of, you know, going first to third, scoring on doubles, getting great reads, going on contact and being safe, right? Like we, we started, we started to really, really emphasize one run at a time, right? Like, let's get one, let's get one, let's get one, right? And then by the end, all of a sudden you got six, right? And then because if you say, oh, we got, we got to score three, well, getting three is hard, right? But getting one, not as hard. And then at the end, ultimately we knew, like as an offense, we, we really looked out at the other starter and said, if we are, obviously winning would be best, but winning tied or pretty close by the fifth inning, and we can get that starter out, our bullpen will outpitch your bullpen. And we will out hit your we will we we will out hit your we will hit better against your bullpen than you will hit hit against ours and we'll win the game. And we knew that. 
And if you look like through the World Series and stuff that during those years, and, and even during the playoffs, the games we lost, we couldn't get the starter out. And that was just and, – and, and sometimes you just can't, right? Like sometimes, sometimes the guy's just dealing, right? And, you know, you're not going to get 14 hits off Jason Schmidt. You know, it's just not going to happen, right? But other games we, we were able to, you know, work a count. Uh, you know, if, if, you know, five or six guys go up there and see five pitches each at bat, all of a sudden that starts adding up, right? Now he's like at a hundred with five and a third and boom, out he comes. Right. And then now it's a bullpen war and, and we think our bullpen is better than your bullpen. And that, and that's how we, that's how we won most of our games. It was that way. Plus you had the rally monkey. Well, this, who, who to this day, and I know you guys all hate him, but to this day, I went to a, uh, angel game last, uh, last summer. And the mm-hmm. rally monkey came out and I'm going crazy. And I'm telling everybody, I love the rally monkey and every, what are, you, what are you talking about, Brett? I said, we used to come here and the rally monkey only came out when it was not, it wasn't good for the opponent, but I love the rally monkey so much. I would take the chance. I'll say, I'll take my chances of being down in the game when that rally monkey comes on. Cause I like it so much. I do. I, I, to this day, I hear that sound in him coming and I just, I just start cracking up and I love watching it. I always have, but I understand that you guys had to deal with that on a nightly basis. It probably got old. You know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't even nightly, right? He only came out when the situation was appropriate, right? We were maybe down by a couple or a close you were, game. And you were, were rallying. You were usually rallying. Yeah. So like, I mean, it wasn't, it, you know, if we were down 16 to two, he didn't, you know, they didn't, right. they didn't fire him up on the big screen, you know? Um, you know, it was, it just became, you know, it became a rallying cry for everybody. Right. And the crowd went nuts. Um, and God, that place got loud, you know, cause early on in my career, we were pulling, you know, 16, 18,000 a game. And all of a sudden there's 44. Yeah. Um, and it got loud. It was and a it cool was place. I, I love it. It's still to this day probably my favorite place to play at a hype stadium. I, oh, I, I love, it. I love. It. I mean, I there, love I, it. there might not be a better place to hit on the planet. I love it's it. The, it's the best. Just the atmosphere, perfect weather yeah. all the time. It's just, it's just awesome. Yeah. You were the, you're the World Series MVP that year in 2002. Yeah. Um, big parade afterwards. Pretty awesome. Oh yeah. And and the thing is, to this day, and and it goes back to you going to spring training. Not too many people walking around this planet have a uh an angels world series ring there's only a handful of you only a handful so only a handful pretty pretty awesome yeah pretty awesome um for for that how big was that for the city of of just take me through the next day or whenever the parade was two days later yeah i mean you know i I think really kind of the city and and the and the fans that have been there since you know the early to mid 60s right like you know, no pun intended, but it kind of got their got you know they felt like it got the monkey off their back, right? Like they'd been they'd been really close a couple times, um, and weren't able to pull through, right? And then this one was able to, and it was like I think it really kind of lifted a a weight off of off of the fans' shoulders, the organization's shoulders, um, to like let everybody take a collective breath, and like they did it. Right. Got it done. We are no longer kind of the lovable loser. Right. Like they got it done and they, and then nobody could ever take that away from us. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty awesome. And, and, you know, I touched on, it, I probably touch on it too much. You know, we've had a lot of guys on the show uh, that won a world series, but every year, every sport, you know, whatever the ultimate is, you know, obviously the Super Bowl, obviously the NBA finals, uh, 
such a such a cool and unique thing to win it all. And, you know, because you did it once. Right. You were probably lucky to do it once. You know, I, the guys out there that have multiple rings, it's like, I don't know how the hell you do it. Cause I was close, you know, a couple times I got the one world series we lost, but I was on some really good teams that fell short. And it's just like, man, this is harder than you think it is to not only do you have to be good, but you got to get some breaks and you got to be at the right place mm-hmm. at the right time and get hot at the right time. Uh, winning a world series is, is so tough. And it's, uh, it, I'm sure you appreciate the hell out of it. You know, I never got to win one, but, uh, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome to watch. And yeah, I still it is. Do. Yeah, it was, you know, and really, you know, when it comes down, as you know, when you, when it comes to the playoffs, really, you know, you get down, well, then it was, I guess it would have been eight teams right then. Um, I don't know how many teams are in it now, a bunch, right. But eight then, um, you know, it, it, obviously all the teams are good. Otherwise they wouldn't be there. Right. But so often the, the team that everybody thought was the best team doesn't win. Cause really what it comes down to is, Who's the hottest at that? Who's the hottest for that month? Right, like who's playing the best right then? And it doesn't matter. Yeah, this, it doesn't this, matter that you won twenty-seven games in July. It doesn't matter. Right? I think. It, la- I think last year, two thousand twenty-two, Dodgers go home, and the Phillies are playing in the World Series. Perfect it's example. Exactly right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't think I don't think anybody would argue that the Dodgers were a better team than the Phillies, but. The Phillies were playing better for October. In that month, they were playing better. And that's really all it comes down to. Because the margins between really good teams and, and and pretty good teams, or even really good teams and bad teams, isn't huge, right? Like anybody can beat anybody. Um, you know, but but what it comes down to really is is yeah, you you know, th- this team won hundred and what what they win, like a hundred and ten or hundred and nine. They were right right on your guys' heels, right? Yeah, they had, I think like they had that. like hundred and eleven. Yeah, I mean, they're right on your guys' heels. Um, you know, and and so clearly they were the best team for the season. I mean, there's no doubt about it. that was that you nobody could argue that. But for whatever reason, maybe maybe it was what you know Tim said, you know, where they're playing meaningful games down the stretch and they never got out of playoff mode for you know eight weeks. You know, it was, it was kind of winner go home for eight weeks. And the Dodgers, you know, I, you know, obviously there's no way to quantify this, but maybe, you know, the last month when they, you know, when they rolled through the West and won it by, I don't know, what they won it by, 15, 18 games, something, something like that. Something, yeah, something ridiculous. Right? Like, I mean, when, when, you know, their magic number was one on like September 3rd. Yep. You know, like, how, how do you, how do you then, how do you then play 18 games that theoretically are 19 games that don't mean anything and then all of a sudden try to get hot again? You know, like that, that, that's, would be really, really hard to do. Um, it's not impossible, but I mean, you know, it's just, I don't know. Like it, it, it I, I only know the, the path that we took. Obviously it was very similar to the path the Phillies took. Um, and I wouldn't change it, man. Playing in games like that. I mean, you know, playing the games like that's so much fun. Like it, it, you know, playing in games that a meaningful game every single day, every single night for as long as you want to do it. It's so much fun. Like, you know, things don't hurt as bad. Right, you're not quite as tired. You know, everything it, it's it's awesome. I mean, I, I I miss that terribly. I miss that feeling. That was so much fun. Uh, spring trip. What do you think of this? You 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 never you ever played a WBC? No. What do you think of that? You know, I I think about it. WBC's coming up. Spring training. I never played in one, but right. I always thought back then, especially Japan, really cares about it a lot because they want to beat you. Yeah. But I think you know all the greatest players in the world. 
are a lot of them are from the Dominican Republic. Sure. A lot of them from the United States now more and more, you know, we got, uh, and I think it's great for the game. Uh, people coming in from everywhere, from Cuba, from, from Japan, mm-hmm. they're getting the, the best players from Japan. They're coming to, to major league baseball, but I don't know. I, I, I look at it and I think if I'm in spring training and I'm, I'm getting ready for my team and I go to the WBC, of course I want to win, but it's not, the end all be all my, I think my, my first obligation is to my team. And, and I'm probably thinking, no, just don't get hurt because the real thing starts April 1st. And this is a fun little tournament we're playing here, but I, I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if the, the game has changed now where the, where the guys today take it a little more serious than we did or not. But I, yeah. I just, I, I wouldn't, my first obligation is to the team that employs me, that writes my checks to me. And, and if you have a little side tournament, now I had the chance to represent the United States, that would be a great honor, but I don't know how important it would be for me to win. Does that make sense? hundred percent. Now I'm, I'm with you on the, my first priority is always to get ready for April 1st. Um, that would, I mean, that is, that is what our job is. That's what we're getting paid for. Right. So I, I found it difficult to wrap my head around that part of it. You know, I have a little bit of different take on it. That being said, wearing USA across your chest is one of the coolest things I ever did. You know, yeah, I got that 96, Nin- 96. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that was the last, you know, the last time it was all, nothing but college guys. We were all college players. I was actually, I was a college sophomore um, or between my sophomore and junior year. And it was really one of the coolest things you get to do is to wear a, a USA across your chest. And when I hear guys say that, I know exactly what they're talking about. Right. And that's super cool. And I don't know if my take would have been different had I not gotten to already do that prior to me being a a pro. Um, It might've been different. Um, Whereas some of these guys have not had that opportunity. Um, But I do understand when they say that, like I really want to wear USA on my chest because it is really cool to do that. You guys won a bronze medal that year. Yep. Well, well, Troy Gloss, I appreciate you coming on the program. This is a lot of fun. Great career. 320 homers, 950 ribbies. Uh, now you're teaching teaching the young one and, and having fun yeah. coaching, life after baseball. Have a great time going down and see, seeing Big Nevin in spring training yeah. and, and, and bring back. We'll, we'll have dinner. And I want to I want to talk to you about your take now being on the after, after you're on the ground in uni, uh, you know, 15 years removed. Not not 15, 13 years removed for you. 15, but, yeah. uh, I appreciate I appreciate coming Thanks, on the program. A lot of fun. And what we do each and every Boone podcast. The end of the podcast. As we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, and that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to wrap it up for the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen into the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.